I'm Olivia, I'm in 10th grade, and I have been attending Summit for five years now. So I have been growing up in a Christian home for well, my whole life. I always heard the stories of the gospel and it just wasn't really my own faith though. And in like eighth grade, I had like, I guess you could say like a falling out with the Lord that I didn't really feel like a Christian. I didn't want to go to church. I wanted to sleep in instead. And so then at camp that year, on the second night, Jason Gaston was preaching. Um, I just felt like a little voice in the back of my head saying, go, this is your time. And this is like what you want. You believe this with your whole heart. This is it, go. And so I accepted Christ that night um, on July 15th, 2017. Uh, now I just try to work his love and his grace into uh, my daily life. I feel like Getting baptized is like making it official. Like you can, there's always times where you can have like the Jesus high where you really believe it and you're really strong and then like you just kind of go back to your original ways. Um, and I feel like baptism can be like, oh yeah, I'm in it. Because you get to show everyone that you believe and it's like, it's like, you show everyone that you got the gift and like the best gift there is. So hey, every time we do baptism, we ask two questions. The first one is this. Do you believe that Jesus has done everything necessary to save you? Yes. That's good news. <laughs> and hey, are you willing to go wherever he calls you to go and do whatever he calls you to do? Yes. What's upon your profession of faith It's my privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I really want to see God move in the people around me at school. It's just a dark place there, and I'm like one of the only lights, and I want to be able to be there for people um, in, a, in any way, shape, or form. So for my one that we've been talking about as a church, I've been trying to pour into these two girls at my school, and just to see like a little bit of growth that I've seen and just like telling them like, oh yeah, what do you do on weekends? Like, oh yeah, well I can't hang out on Sundays, I'll be at church again. Sometimes they're like, oh yeah, why do you always go to church? Like, why is that? I'm like, well I love it because most of them, they don't love it and I love Summit and I love being here every week. If they, if they came to know Christ, I would like cry, like without a doubt, like I, it's just, I would be like the, over the moon happy and excited because knowing that I could be involved in their walk with the Lord is just like an amazing gift because I'm like it's just like so exciting and your eternal walk and an eternal like saving and like everything like you're going to heaven now like it's really exciting like I got to be a part of it like I don't know it just like gets me excited now talking about it. That is, that is awesome. That is awesome. Olivia's story is just one of almost um, 100 baptisms, actually 110 that we saw between last week and this weekend here at the Summit Church. And um, it has been amazing as God has moved here in our midst. Um, by the way, as of last weekend, there have been 311 professions of faith here at this church since January the 1st, uh, which is worth celebrating. 
And every single one of those was invited by somebody here, somebody that reached out to them and built a relationship with them and brought them in, which is why we talk about who is your one. So every one of that 311 started with a relationship except for one that I know of. Um, and that is a guy, you're gonna think I'm making this story up, that I met after our services here who came up to me and told me that he had accepted Christ here at our church that morning. And I said, well, how'd you get here? That's a question I like to ask people a lot. And uh, he said, oh, he said, well, he said, man, I, I worked the late shift. I worked over Saturday night and I was driving home uh, this morning and uh, I got behind somebody on the interstate. It had one of those little blue dots on the back of their car. And I'd seen that around the triangle and I knew that, you know, heard it was the Summit Church. So I just decided I would follow them because I thought they probably were going to the Summit Church. So we showed up here, got saved that morning, uh, which is amazing. So uh, put the dot on your car and drive like a Christian. That's all I got to say about that, okay? Um, anyway, a lot we got worth celebrating. And at the end of this weekend, we're going to give you, um, or at the end of the message today, I'm going to give you another chance to, to be baptized here on the spot. Uh, if you never have been, baptism is the public declaration, like Olivia said a moment ago. It is a public declaration, the ceremony, the going public of your faith. Uh, it is something that happens after you receive Christ as a choice of your own. You uh, demonstrate that by declaring to everyone that you are buried with Jesus in baptism. You are accepting his death as yours and you are raised with him in new life. And so we wanna give you a chance to do that today if you never have. I know you say, well, I didn't come prepared uh, this morning to do that. And we'll always tell you that's okay because we are prepared for you. Uh, in fact, I saw something on WRAL this weekend. Uh, they said that evidently um, this is a record setting weekend in the triangle because it's the first time in history they know of that there's the fourth consecutive weekend in a row that we have had rain. Uh, in fact, eight of 10 of the, la of the weekend since the beginning of the uh, year have had rain on them. And so just the moniker on WRAL just said another wet weekend in the triangle. And I thought, well, that's perfect because we're gonna have another wet weekend here at the Summit Church for you to get baptized. And so you're gonna get wet one way or another. You might as well do it for Jesus, amen? Okay, so we're gonna give you a chance to do that at the end. I'll give you more instructions about that. Uh, let me also say welcome to all of you uh, who slept through the nine o'clock service. I see so many of our friends uh, from the nine o'clock service here uh, this morning, but uh, if you your Bible this weekend, Romans chapter three, Romans chapter three, verse 27. Uh, Romans 3, 27. Uh, if you want to open your Bible there, if you've got your journal, and I hope that you are bringing your journal each weekend, um, you can turn to page 32. You'll find the text of scripture and you'll find a place to take notes. Recently, my family and I were at Universal Studios in Orlando, Florida. I had to speak down in Orlando at something. And so while we were there, we decided to make it a family trip and take in a couple of the, of the amusement parks. Well, if you've ever been to Universal Studios, you know that one of the main attractions there is Harry Potter World. And regardless of what you think about, about that whole saga, I know some of you have some reservations and I'm not trying to get into that here this morning or not trying to wade into those waters, but regardless, um, it is one of the most elaborately built, amazing sections of any amusement park that I've ever been to. The creativity and the construction that went into it are staggering. But here's the thing, if you've ever been to Universal Studios, you probably know this, the entrance to that part of the park is at the very back of the park and it's almost completely unmarked. And that is intentional. It's supposed to recreate how you get into the, you know, the so-called magical world in the book. So when you're in Universal Studios, you basically, at the back of the park, you walk through this open doorway in a wall that looks like you're going into a public restroom, but instead it opens up into this amazing and complex world of imagination. I told my wife that if you did not know that that part of the park was there, it's very likely that you could walk right by it and miss the most elaborate thing at Universal Studios. 
Well, I share that because that is a little bit about how I feel about Romans chapter three, verses 27 through 31. I'll be honest with you, I almost skipped it in the teaching of the book of Romans here because on the surface, when you read it, it looks kind of inconsequential. After explaining in some of the most beautiful, majestic theological language, how we come to Christ and why that's distinct from every other religion of the world, Paul then just starts to, starts, to, starts to ramble on a little bit about the law. At least that's what it seems, Romans 3 verse 27. Where then is boasting? He said, it's excluded. By what kind of law? By one of works? No, on the contrary, by a law of faith. For we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, he's the God of the Gentiles too, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. Verse 31, do we then nullify the law through faith? Absolutely not. On the contrary, we uphold the law. It almost seemed to me like Paul was rambling on a little bit about the law after he's finished making his point. It's like, Paul, man, land the plane. Okay, you, you, you made it, you stuck the landing, now just wrap the chapter up. But the more I have learned about the book of Romans, the more I see that these verses address what is Paul's primary purpose or one of Paul's primary purposes in the book of Romans, and they are absolutely crucial. Remember I told you this the first weekend in the introduction, the book of Romans is not just a treatise on the gospel. It is that. It's the most detailed treatise we have in the Bible on the gospel, but it is also very practical counsel that he's being given to the church in Rome about a real live problem they were having. And that problem was that Jews and Gentiles were not getting along in the church. You remember this during the introduction, I told you that Romans was written right after Jews had returned back to the church in Rome after having been gone for five years. The Jewish people had been gone because five years prior to the writing of the book, Emperor Claudius had banished all Jews from Rome, which would have included Jewish Christians as well. By the way, you can find that story in Acts 18, one and two, it describes that. Well, after being gone for five years, the Jews are allowed to come back in. Here was the thing, Jews and Gentiles, we know had all these cultural differences. They had stylistic differences, political differences and so forth. Prior to this, prior to this ban, the Jews had been basically the ones in charge of the church. Right? They were the first Christians, which means they had established the church and the Gentiles that became Christians were coming into a church that was led by Jews with Jewish customs. After they got banished, of course, the Gentiles took over. So now that the Jews are coming back after being gone five years, they are returning to a church very different than the one they left. The church was now doing Gentile music with Gentile instruments. The pastor was wearing Gentile style. Sometimes he preached in air Caesars or whatever. And the potlucks they were serving, they were serving Gentile foods. Everything was different. So the culture that used to be in charge wasn't in charge anymore. And so all these racial and cultural tensions are flaring. You can understand that, right? I mean, if you're part of the so-called majority culture here, imagine that Roy Cooper, our governor, just came out and just banished all white people from Raleigh and the Triangle for the next five years. And imagine that we all come back, if you're in the majority culture, to a church where other people, you know, other people that aren't, that, that, that weren't raised like a lot of us, that have different cultures and styles and things, all of a sudden it's, it doesn't feel like, you know, the church we, we left. You can see why there's going to be a challenge there. So Paul is trying to help unify these these Jews and Gentiles in this church. By the way, by the way, I think it's really important here to note that they did not do the easy thing, which would have been to start a Jewish campus and a Gentile campus, right? Or to start a Jewish church down the road and a Gentile church on opposite sides of the town. That would have been much easier, but they did not do that. And that's because, because Paul's vision of the church, Jesus's vision of the church was Jew and Gentile in one united body. 
which is why I would say that multi-ethnicity is so important to our church as well. We know that we need to reflect the diversity of our community and we need to also proclaim the diversity of God's kingdom. And if I could just be really, really candid here with you for a minute, some of our brothers and sisters of color here in this church have told me, they're like, you know what? You guys in the majority culture, you like the concept of diversity as long as you're the ones who remain in charge and everything is stylistically the way that you like it. As long as everybody else will adapt to your customs and styles. I've told you that many of us, many of us think we want a multi-ethnic church when what we really want is a multi-colored church with everybody of different colors acting like they all like our customs and styles. That makes for a really good photo op. It makes for a good picture on the website, but it is not actual kingdom diversity. That is why Summit Church, we try to share leadership here at the church and be open to doing things a little differently than some of us may have grown up used to right? That, that's what we are trying to do here. I've told you the definition of a multi-ethnic church is that at some point you feel uncomfortable. If you're not ever feeling uncomfortable, including if you're the pastor, um, if you're not ever doing that, it just means that you've made everybody conform to you. And, that, and, and that's not the vision of it. So Paul is writing into this context to try to say, hey, there is a way to get beyond these things to have more in Christ than you have dividing you, whether it's culturally or politically or whatever. Paul says the answer to this relational breakdown is the gospel. And he writes the longest treatise on the gospel to address a relational problem, which is in itself a lesson to you. Paul didn't write five ways to get along. What he wrote was, here's the gospel. He says, this is ultimately a gospel issue. Relational problems go back to gospel realities being forgotten. So wherever it's broken, we're gonna put the gospel there. And that's what we're trying to do. Paul says that one of the primary things that is dividing Jew and Gentile believers is specifically, follow me here, is how Jewish people approach the law. Jewish people approach the law with a typical, we've called it a religious mindset. Every religion in the world functions on this premise, except for the gospel. Every religion says, I obey, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. If I obey well enough and often enough and do enough good things and pass God's standard, then I will be accepted by God. That's the, what the Jewish people, many of the Jewish Christians even, had continued to assume that their, 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 their justification, their being made right with God was found in the excellence of their law keeping. It is that premise, Paul says, that fuels this division. Now you're like, well, okay, how, how's that? Well, see, when your justification is based on how well you do, you are always in competition with everybody else because how good you see yourself is determined by how you compare to others. And that results in pride and boasting when you feel like you're doing well, and it results in despair and, and jealousy when you feel like you're not doing well. You see, the essence of pride in any area whether we're talking sports or religion or academics or parenting or culture or ethnicity, the essence of pride is competition. I love how C.S. Lewis explains it. Look at this. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are only proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everybody else became equally rich or equally clever or equally good looking, well, there'd be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud. It is the pleasure at being above the rest. Does that make sense? I mean, think of it this way. It doesn't matter to you Duke fans that your team is good, only that you are better than Carolina and vice versa. 
And to state fans, you don't care what your record is for the season, only that you beat at least one of those teams at least once during the season, right? I mean, we can't just enjoy the fact that we have two of the greatest basketball programs in history right here in the triangle. No, we got to count championships. We got to count which coach has more wins. And obviously we should all just be state fans since Jesus said the last will be first anyway, okay? Right? That's how pride works. Pride sustains itself. It sustains itself by competition. So when you think of it in religious terms, you're, you're always asking yourself subtly, uh, am I better than this person? Am I, where am I on the scale of, of good people? Or you might think of it in another sphere, like am I as good of a mother as so-and-so? And like I said, when you feel like you're doing well, comparatively speaking, that leads you to boasting, which very quickly turns into judgmentalism and then even disdain. When you don't compare favorably to others, that leads to an inferiority complex or despair, which very quickly turns into jealousy and hatred. You end up developing a real sensitivity to criticism. That's your first sign that this is a problem for you. You're really sensitive to criticism. Criticism really bothers you because your identity is built on being good compared to others. And when people challenge your sense of goodness by criticizing you, well, they challenge you at your very core. They're challenging your identity. So you get really, really prickly when criticized. Either their criticism devastates you and you go into a tailspin of despair or in self-defense, you start, you know, criticizing them back or coming up with a list of reasons why you're actually better than they are anyway. The reason you're doing that is because your justification has been attacked. Your justification, what sets you apart, what makes you good. So you got to defend yourself. Or maybe you just kind of silently resent whomever you feel like makes you look bad. That guy at work gets that promotion that you thought that you deserved, right? And so in your, 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 you're kind of jealous of him and in your heart, you say things like, well, I'm a better dad than him. I, I'll be honest with you. I used to think this kind of stuff about other pastors I was jealous of, just to be totally frank with you. Man, you know, if I, if I heard somebody that I thought was a lot better preacher than me or, or they had a, you know, a lot more successful church, I, I'd be like, yeah, but I'm better at X, Y, and Z than they are. And that makes me all around better than them. And that's because my justification came from how good I thought I was in my profession. Or maybe for you, it's that other mother that puts up her perfect little pic on, that, on Facebook of her perfect little kids and her perfect little outfits with her perfect little bows and uh, you know, her perfect little brownies in front of her perfect little HGTV-worthy kitchen. You think, I just hate her. Um, you know, and, and you think, I bet you she's having marital problems. I hope she's having marital problems, <laughs> right? But by the way, don't act like I'm not describing what goes on in your heart. I've been honest with you about what goes on in my heart. I know it's what goes on in your heart. That's just the way that we work. That all comes from having an identity that is built on goodness, on being set apart, on justification that comes from being good, from law keeping. It even makes us end up really living in denial about our flaws, which makes us really hard to get along with because we can't even admit our flaws to ourselves because that would undermine our sense of goodness. You might give us some throwaway comments about we're all sinners or, or you might you know, make fun of yourself in some areas, but when it really comes down to self-criticism, you just don't do that because you gotta maintain that sense of goodness to feel justified. You see why Paul pinpoints this as a major source of division? So after explaining the gospel in detail to them in chapter three, that is that our justification doesn't come from how good we are at anything because we're not really good at anything. It's given to us freely as a gift in Christ Jesus. Paul then says, verse 27, so where exactly is boasting then? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Do we stop boasting because God says, thou shalt not boast? Do we stop judging because he says, thou shalt not judge? No, it's not one of works. On the contrary, our boasting ceases by the logic of faith. The gospel eliminates boasting by undercutting the very basis of pride. 
I mean, hey, you weren't saved by anything you did. You weren't saved by keeping the law. You couldn't keep the law. You were a miserable failure. There was none righteous, not even one, no one who even sought God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In fact, Paul explains, you were so bad. You were so bad that Jesus had to die to save your sorry soul. And that destroys the basis of pride. You know what we sing about here in the church? When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt, disdain on all my pride. Or Paul says, is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yeah, he's the God of the Gentiles too. There's only one God. He justifies the circumcised, that means the religious people, by faith and the uncircumcised, the irreligious people. He justifies them by faith just as well because ultimately when you peel back the layers of their religion, they got the same sinful heart. It means they, got the, they need to be saved the same way. So why do you think of yourself in different categories? There's only one kind of person, sinner. All have sinned. All Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, black, white, religious, irreligious, all of them. There's just one kind of sinner. All of them have fallen short of the glory of God. And there's only one way of salvation, verse 29, one God who justifies both the religious and the irreligious in exactly the same ways. That means the gospel, Paul says, that means the gospel should be creating a new humanity that really ought to overcome the divisions that result from boasting that comes from you distinguishing yourselves in different categories and trying to show why well, you're set apart in some way. It's a new inclusive humanity that overcomes any divisions that resulted from boasting. Now, you're, you're listening to me and you're like, wait a minute, Pastor JD, only one God, only one way of salvation? That doesn't sound inclusive to me. That sounds like the epitome of exclusive. Well, that's a really good point, all right? But listen, if you're, especially if you're new to, to Christianity or new to the church, hang with me here for just a minute, okay? You gotta understand, I get why you think that would be exclusive, but you gotta understand first that all religious claims are ultimately exclusive. For example, hang with me. If you say all good people of every religion go to heaven, well, that sounds like super inclusive, right? I mean, hashtag coexist. All right, well then, if you say that, all good people of every religion go to heaven, who have you just excluded? Bad people. And I guess you're the one who gets to define what is bad. And I suppose racists and rapists and child molesters will be on that list. And if you tend to lean more conservative, I'm supposing you would put certain kinds of, of sexual immorality on the list of what makes somebody bad. And if you're on the more liberal side, you would probably put anybody who judges somebody else for some kind of sexual immorality, you would put that on the bad list. But the point is you all have a list and some people are on it and others aren't. Now, I know you're like, well, well no, 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 I, I'm not religious at all. I don't exclude anybody for any reason. I would say that's not true. You still have a standard as to what constitutes a good person. I, I used to live right outside of, of Chapel Hill. Now that's a hashtag coexist place if there ever was one, right? You try driving a truck with oversized tires and an NRA sticker on the back windshield and another sticker telling people you think global warming is a hoax and that's why you refuse to recycle. And I bet you will experience some non-acceptance from some of the people there. That's not what I did, by the way. That's not what I, but I'm just saying the point is their definition of what is good and bad is just as exclusive in Chapel Hill as any other fundamentalist community in the world. All religious and all moral viewpoints end up being exclusive. Everybody's got a line for who was in and who was out. But the gospel of Jesus, you see, is a different kind of exclusivity because the gospel teaches us that our acceptance with God is not based on anything about us. 
We're not accepted by God because of our higher morality. We're not accepted because of our education or our marital status or our race or our political viewpoint. No, God extends salvation to us as a gift to all who will admit that they are unworthy to receive it and repent and receive it in humility and faith. In fact, you might say it this way, all religions are exclusive, Tim Keller says. All religions are exclusive, but Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity that there is. What made the gospel scandalous in the first century was not who it excluded. What made the gospel scandalous was whom it included. According to the Talmud, which was a a set of Jewish traditions that tell us about the history in the first century. According to the Talmud, um, every Jewish man, as part of his morning quiet time, would pray this prayer. He would say, God, thank you that I am not a woman, I'm not a slave, and I'm not a Gentile. Because in their kind of hierarchy, you know, being a Jewish man was the highest in in the hierarchy. All right, so I've told you when we went through the book of Acts, I've told you it is not coincidental that when Paul goes to Philippi, a He's a Jewish rabbi. He goes to a Gentile city and he starts preaching the gospel. The first three people to get saved, the first three people to come to Christ is a woman, Lydia, a slave girl, and then a Gentile. So the first four members of the church in Philippi were a Jewish man, a woman, a slave, and a Gentile. That is not accidental. God is saying, I'm turning everything on its head. I'm showing you there's really no distinction that all people are saved in the same way and that this is the most inclusive exclusivity that there ever has been. The gospel overturns all basis for boasting, all basis for division. Like Paul says, it's excluded, not because God gave us a law, don't discriminate. He just undermined any of the things that would have caused discrimination in the first place. Now, by the way, in case it's still unclear to you, please don't think of justification. Don't think of this just in terms of religion because all people, secular and religious alike, are seeking justification. Uh, In fact, um, this might be, well, not might be, this is the driving impulse that you have in life, whether you realize it or not. Uh, Many people will turn to religion. They think that their religion makes them good and acceptable, but other people will turn to other things. Um, In our secular culture, many people, for example, turn to excellence in their job. And so if they're really good at what they do, that gives them a purpose for living. That makes them good. It gives them a sense of worth. It makes them put their head up high. I read this article um, a few weeks ago about Sidney Pollack. If you don't recognize that name, he was one, a very famous movie maker, has produced a lot of the movies that are probably your favorites. He died in 2008. Um, right before he died, he was very sick, very weak. Um, and that's when this article came out because it explained that even though he was on the verge of death, even though he was very weary, he refused to stop working. Even when his family was pleading with him to slow down because they could see it was driving him to an early grave, he said, and I quote, he said, I know, I know, I know that it's, it's driving me to my grave and it's grueling process, but I can't justify my existence if I stop. Every time I finish another movie, I feel like I have earned my stay for another year or so. That's what many people in the the, the so-called secular sphere do. It's like, I got to earn my stay by being good at what I do. That is a secular quest for righteousness. Many people try to find it, for example, in their parenting. I read another article about a writer whose career was not going anywhere. I mean, nobody was reading his work and the papers weren't calling him, getting him to write articles. And he, he, he said, I started to question my whole purpose in life. But then he says, get this. Then I looked at my two little girls and I know that my existence is justified. In other words, being a good dad to those two little girls justified his existence. I would say a lot of parents are like that. Their existence is justified by being a good enough parent that enables their children to be successful. But here's the thing. 
if your children are your justification, you're gonna end up putting way too much pressure on them because you need them to succeed for you to feel validated. If they don't succeed, then you feel like a failure. And that's why if they do poorly or they get in trouble or they compare unfavorably to the kids of your friends, you take it as a deep personal blow to your identity. In fact, it probably even slips out in the kind of things you say to your kids. If you don't do this, then I'm gonna look bad as a parent. I am a failure as a parent if this is what you end up doing. Your passion for their success is not really about them at all. It's about you. It's selfish because your success, your validation is determined by their success. You need them to succeed so you feel justified. All of this, whether it's parenting or success or religion, all of it goes back to a soul, S-O-U-L, condition that is beautifully, just incredibly pictured for us in the Garden of Eden. Now, this is one of those word pictures I go back to a lot because I really do think you need to get your mind around it because it explains kind of what, how we all live. I told you that, the, that, that, that after we sinned in the Garden of Eden, the first effect, according to the Bible, of our sin was a sense of our nakedness. Now, before that, read the story, they were already naked, but their nakedness didn't bother them. Why, St. Augustine said, the reason why is because they felt clothed in the love and the acceptance of God. But after they sinned, having men stripped of that love and acceptance, they suddenly became aware of their nakedness. So what did they do? They tried to find covering. And I told you that's a picture of the human race is we feel exposed, we feel unacceptable, we feel shame. And so our whole life is spent as a quest to reclothe ourselves. Isn't that what a normal person does when they feel naked? Right? I mean, a normal person's always gonna try to find clothes. I've told you if you have a problem sleepwalking and you wake up in Walmart buck naked in the middle of the night, you don't like, hey, I'll pick up a few odds and ends for the house. You don't do that. You go to the clothing section, try to cover that. That's a picture of us going through life is we're always trying to find something that tells us we're okay. Something that is our righteousness, something that is our clothing, something that sets us apart, something that makes us acceptable. That is our justification. By the way, the word righteousness and justification in Greek are the exact same word. So all of us are doing this. And all of us, whatever we turn to our justification becomes a point of division, a point of pride, a point of, of jealousy and despair. Charles Spurgeon, who's the 19th century British pastor that I quote so much that some of you have asked if he's on staff here at the Summit Church. Uh, he is not. We do consider him the pastor emeritus of the Summit Church, but he's lived in the 19th century. He's been long dead. Um, he said, he said, in Londonian society in the 19th century, there were three primary dividers, three primary dividers. It is amazing how here we are, you know, more than 100 years later, these are exactly still the same dividers that we see at work in our culture. Listen, he, I'll give them to you as an A, B, and a C. He said, first of all, there is the pride of race. For many, their ethnic identity becomes a way of distinguishing, distinguishing themselves above others. Jews in that day took pride in their Jewishness. Romans took pride in their Romanness. That led to feelings of racism, feelings of superiority, even xenophobia. Today, people take pride in their Americanness or their Southernness or their Blackness or their Asianness or their Indian culture or their Latinoness or whatever. A racial distinctive becomes core to their identity. Now, I want you to hear me. Our cultures are beautiful things. And there is nothing wrong with taking delight in our culture. There's nothing wrong with feeling a, a profound sense of dignity in our culture. God created our various cultures like, like a many-sided diamond to reflect his glory. And we glorify him not all by becoming one culture, but by delighting in and displaying and feeling dignified in the culture God made us in. 
But when that culture, when that ethnicity becomes our primary distinguishing identity, when it becomes part of our justification, when it becomes what, what gives us a sense of worth and what sets us apart, it will always cause division because you become really proud of and then defensive of your culture because your culture establishes your uniqueness. It's part of your specialness. It becomes your justification. Paul would say to us, just like he said to them, friend, do you not understand the gospel? There's only one race of people, the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. We got one core problem, sin. All have sin. All fall short of the glory of God. There's no distinction. And we've got one hope, the blood of Jesus that cleanses us all, whether we're black, white, Latino, Asian, Arab, or mixed, he cleanses us all alike. So where is boasting then? From where comes this sense of superiority about your race? Any kind of ethnic superiority is stupid and completely antithetical to the gospel. What gives us our worth and our identity is not our Jewishness or our whiteness or our Americanness or our blackness anymore. By the keeping of the law or by the preservation of our culture, no human being is justified. In fact, after our identity in Christ, after embracing that, Paul said, all the rest of our defining characteristics, all the rest of our success, all the rest of those things should seem in our eyes like garbage compared to the surpassing worth of what we have in Christ. In fact, in Philippians 3, Paul said that very thing. He said that his Jewishness, and Paul loved his Jewishness. He loved that culture. But he said, compared to what I have in Christ, my Jewishness is like scubala. Now, in some of your translations, if you have sort of a soft kind of, you know, friendly translation, of the Bible, it'll say garbage. Really a better translation, some translations will say dung, dung. Um, scholars tell us that even dung is way too weak. Um, put it this way, scubala is the kind of word that if your 12-year-old Greek son used it, you would wash out his mouth with soap. And Paul said, I used to boast about all these things, my education. I used to boast about my Jewishness. Now I see that as all BS, bull scubala is how you would think of that. When Paul says that, that's not self-loathing. It's not embarrassment over his race. He loved being a Jew. He loved his heritage. He's just saying, compared to my identity in Christ, it all seems like scuba. It'd be like comparing a Timex watch to a Rolex watch. It's just, yeah, I mean, the one has value, but not compared to the other one. The other one has infinitely more value. This is really important. Listen, when we become Christians, our cultural distinctives do not go away. They should not go away. They just become a lot less important in our identity and they cease to be part of our justification. Tony Evans, an African-American preacher, is one of my absolute favorites. The racial application of Paul's teaching on the gospel is that it is technically incorrect to say, I'm a black Christian or I'm a white Christian because now you've made black and white adjectives and Christian the noun. The job of the adjective is to modify the noun. So now you gotta, you gotta keep Christian looking like the adjective that describes it or it ceases to be Christian. He says, but black and white culture have nothing to do with the essence of being a Christian. Better, better is to say, I'm a Christian whom God made white or I'm a Christian whom God made black. Tony Evans continues, if we could get enough Christians to be Christian before white, Christian before black, Christian before Spanish, we might add Christian before Republican, Christian before Democrat, it wouldn't take 240 years to fix this. It would take about two minutes and 40 seconds. God is not telling Jewish people to become Gentiles. He's not telling Gentiles to become Jews. He's not telling white people to become black people or black people to act like they're white people. He's telling all people in the church to identify first and foremost as kingdom people, having crucified their whiteness or blackness or Jewishness on the cross. And regarding those things as important and as precious as they are, regarding them as scubala, 
in giving us worth or justification before God. Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes when we experience racial, racial division, at the root of it is that our ethnic identity has become too large in our identity. We've started to look at our racial identity as part of our justification. In other words, we've forgotten the gospel. By the way, this happened to no less than the apostle Peter. Galatians 2, Paul takes on Peter because Peter is now dividing himself from Gentiles. He won't eat with them. He'll fellowship with them some places, but he won't do certain things with them. And Paul basically says, Peter, have you forgotten the gospel? Which is a pretty bold thing to say to the leader of the church. You forgot the gospel, but Paul's not trying to shame him. Paul's saying, Peter, you got to think about what the gospel taught us. The gospel taught us that we're not saved because of anything that we've done or anything special about us. Jesus came to us when we were outside of the camp. So how would we ever exclude anybody for any reason? The gospel teaches us to go outside of our circles, just like Jesus went outside of his. Peter, who are you to exclude somebody else? A failure to pursue diversity means that we have forgotten how far it was that Jesus reached out to include us. Jesus was infinitely more different from us than any of us are from each other. Jesus's choice to make us family is the reason that we can and should cross cultural lines to do the same with others. Yes, racial reconciliation, oneness is costly and inconvenient. Yes, it is sometimes even awkward and painful. And you're gonna experience that in your small group. But you remember that oneness cost Jesus his very life. And if that's the price he paid for the church to be one, who are we to decide that the cost of pursuing multi-ethnic oneness is too high and too inconvenient a price for us to pray? That's the pride of race. Paul says we're done with that. Then there's number letter B, the pride of face and place. That's where we think that some characteristic or personal accomplishment sets us apart. Something we've accomplished justifies us before others. We tend to see people in categories, right? Don't we? Just everywhere, everything we look, we see them in categories. The successful and the unsuccessful, the intelligent and the dull, the beautiful and the ugly, the fit and the fat, the rich and the poor. And then we look down on those who are less than we are in these categories, or we feel intimidated by those who are more than we are in those categories. Paul would say, if that's you, you're feeling either pride or inferiority, do you not understand the gospel? First, he would say, do you understand how little of your talents you can actually take credit for? Whenever I talk to a, a, somebody who thinks of themselves as a self-made man or you know, self-made woman here in the triangle, I always wanna say, really? Honestly, you think if you had been born as an orphan in a village in Somalia, you would have accomplished the same things that you've accomplished today? Probably not. You're probably not as self-made as you think you are. In fact, your parents were the one that gave you the genes. You didn't even choose that. God gave you the air to breathe. You've got the land of opportunity. A lot of things are the result of things that God has given to you and that others have given to you. The second thing I would say to them, and Paul, I think, would say to them is, don't you realize how worthless your talents are when it comes to the things that really matter? I mean, all your talents could not justify you before God. They did not work as clothing. But because before God, there's only one kind of sinner. There's a hopeless dead sinner. That's everybody. Right, all are not righteous, none seek God. There's not successful high capacity sinners with a lot of potential. There's not unpromising sinners, just hopeless dead sinners. Heaven is not a scholarship program where God rewards the best of the best. Furthermore, the best resume in God's eyes, the best resume in God's eyes, Paul says, is a big steaming pile of scubula. Furthermore, what we have now in Jesus, Paul says, 
is worth infinitely more than any of those things, any of those things anyway. When you realize what you have in Christ, <laughs> the, the, the things that causes division down here because of the pride of face and place, it's just, it's stupid. I mean, think about it like this. Who cares? Who cares if I'm not that intelligent now? One day I'm going to inherit the mind of Christ. Okay, that's gonna make me a lot more intelligent than the most intelligent person here. It doesn't matter if I'm not beautiful now because one day Jesus is gonna make my outside match the beauty of the righteousness he has put on my inside. Folks, that means I can be ugly for 70 or 80 years because I get to be beautiful for eternity. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I'm not that successful now. You wanna know why? Because the weakest saint, the weakest saint Jesus said is gonna reign with him as a king and queen for eternity, right? So I got a big old promotion coming. I know it's just around the corner. And when I get there, it doesn't matter what I had here because it's going to seem like scubala when it comes to what I'm given there. It doesn't matter if somebody now doesn't appreciate me here. You want to know why? Because in Christ, he, I literally have, the Bible tells me, Zephaniah 3, a father who is dancing and singing over me. So I can deal with your mean tweets. I can deal with your comments on Facebook, okay? It doesn't bother me that much because I got a heavenly father behind every one of those comments who is dancing and delighted. And if I got his approval, I just don't need yours that much. The pride of race doesn't make any sense. The pride of face and place makes no sense. Maybe worse and most nonsensical of all, Paul says, or Spurgeon says, excuse me, is the pride of grace. The pride that comes from having lived a, a moral or religious upstanding life feeling like you're better because you avoided certain shameful sins and mistakes. You look around, you're like, well, I've never been to prison. I didn't get pregnant before I got married. I never got fired from my job. I didn't get divorced. My kids didn't get divorced. I don't have a porn problem. And so now you feel the sense of distinction, even, even like you're set apart from others who have gone through some of those things. Paul would say, friend, do you not understand the gospel? In Christ, there's no good people. There's no bad people. There's no people who have it together and dysfunctional people. There's only bad, dead, sin-sick rebels without God and without hope in this world. And if they're saved, the only way they're saved is by a sheer act of God's grace. And just because God in his grace kept you from some of the worst fruitions of your sin doesn't mean you're made out of something different than others who have gone down those roots. It's like the Puritans used to say, the seed of every sin is in every heart. And if God in his grace has kept you back from the fruition of your depraved heart, that's not something to feel proud about. It's something to feel extremely grateful about because God saved you from yourself. There's none righteous, not even one. There's nobody who seeks God. All that I have, Paul says, is the result of God's grace working in me. So where do you get off thinking that you're superior because of your race, because of your face or place, or because of your experience of grace? It was no merit of yours that brought you closer to God. Your acceptance was all the gift righteousness of Christ. It was undeserved and, 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 and it was imputed to you. It was given to you as a gift. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. But what kind of law? Does God really need to say, thou shalt not be proud? He would say, and this is my own vernacular. No, you idiot. Just think about the gospel. If you're proud, you don't know the gospel because the gospel teaches you that none of these things are the things to be proud of. They're all scuba, they're all worthless, that you and I are saved by a gift of grace. And so, yes, is God the God of Jews only? Is he the God of the successful? No. Is he the God of Gentiles too? Yes, he's the God of Gentiles too. See, there's only one God. Then he justifies everybody the exact same way. And that is through the blood of Jesus Christ that not a single one of us deserve. So yes, friend, Christianity is exclusive. Christianity teaches us the only way we can be justified in God's sight is by having Christ's righteousness imputed to us. But that is the most inclusive exclusivity there has ever been because it says, whosoever will may come. 
It doesn't matter the mistakes of your past. It does not matter the problems you got in the present. It doesn't matter your potential or lack thereof for the future. You come to Jesus and Jesus saves whosoever. And I know you think you're being inclusive by saying, well, all people of every good religion are gonna go to heaven. You are actually becoming the moralist you despise because you are saying to people that if you meet the standard, whatever it is, then you're gonna get there. And Jesus says, no, none of you meet the standard, not a one of you. It's all gonna be something I gotta give you as a gift. And if we would embrace that, we would become the most inclusive community there has ever been. Go back and read Romans chapter three that lays out the way of salvation. And look at all the all language, all have sinned, all come this way. There's only one God. He justifies everybody the same, whether you're downtrodden, damaged or scarred, whether you've got a religious background or not, you need Jesus and Jesus saves everybody alike. That'll destroy division. And I would also note, it'll just make you an easier person to be around. You become a lot less judgmental of everybody else. Whenever you're judgmental, it just shows that you don't really haven't grappled with the realities of the gospel. You become more accepting. You certainly never look down on people with a sense of smug superiority. In fact, you'll start to show empathy toward people when they're in difficult circumstances. And you won't just think I'm made of something totally different. That's why I'm not in that. You also become a lot less prickly when people point out your flaws. And that's because your identity won't be built any longer on being perfect. So you won't have to defend this this image of I'm good and I'm perfect and I'm better and I'm worth it. And so you'll be able to accept criticism about you because you're like, well, I don't, my identity is not in being a perfect parent. My identity is not being a, even a flawless Christian. My identity is in who I belong to in Jesus. In fact, I love how Paul Tripp, who's taught here before, I love how he says it. Nothing can ever be uncovered about me that God has not already seen and covered by the death of Jesus. That means if I'm walking with Jesus, if you're like, well, you know what? A, B, and C is wrong with you. I should be like, yep. You all forgot X, Y, and Z. There's a whole lot more that you don't even know. I'm a whole lot worse than you think I am. But there's not a single thing that will ever be brought forward that has not already been seen and covered by the death of Jesus. And my identity is in him. I don't need you to think of me as awesome because my justification is not in my awesomeness. My justification is in him. My boast, my boast is in him. My pride is in him. I boast, I do, but I don't boast in me. I boast in Jesus so when you are experiencing division, when you experience jealousy, when you experience feelings of bitterness or insecurity or pride, that ought to be a trigger that makes you ask yourself the question first, what am I boasting in? Because I would say probably 99 times out of 100, that conflict, that feeling of jealousy, that experience of bitterness and insecurity is coming from boasting in the wrong place. And when your boast is wrong, then you will experience conflict. Is your boast in your race, your face, your place, or your experience of grace? How much you've accomplished, how good of a parent you are, how good of a student you are, how good looking you are, how good of a person you are. Anytime you boast in something besides the gospel, it's gonna lead to conflict. But when you boast in the gospel, then we're gonna be the most inclusive community on the planet. Last verse, verse 31. Do we then nullify the law through faith? Absolutely not. On the contrary, we uphold the law. The last verse of this chapter, Paul turns one more time to the Jewish person he hears objecting. Paul, man, you're so hard on the law. You say like the law is worthless. Paul says, absolutely not. I'm not saying that. I'm actually the one who's upholding the law because see what the law does, watch this. What the law does is it reveals God to you. And the first thing the law does when you see God and you see what he wants you to be, is it's like a mirror and suddenly you realize what you're not and what you could never be. And that drives you in desperation to grace to say, God, I, I, I can't be accepted by keeping the law because I, I, my heart doesn't want to do it. 
and I can never be good enough. And then after you receive grace, watch this, then you suddenly develop the desire to become like the God who is behind the law, who is revealed by the law. And so you return to the law, but this time not to earn justification, but as an act and pursuit of love, trying to please and become like the God who has saved you. It's like I've told you, the law is like railroad tracks, railroad tracks that point the direction to go, but are powerless to move the freight along the tracks. The gospel is the engine that moves the freight along the tracks. After you have gotten the power, you still want the tracks because the tracks show you how to become like the God that you now adore. I love how Jen Wilkin, who will actually be here in a few weeks, says it. The law drives us to grace. Oh, but grace drives us back to the law because we want to become like the God who has saved us. So as we end chapter three, we're about to go into chapter four, which is just new levels of awesomeness. I need to make sure you understand what we've covered in chapter three. Are you with me? Okay, here's the big, the big idea. Justification versus sanctification. Everybody gets these wrong. You gotta get them straight. Justification is God's, everybody say this word with me, declaration, right? None of you did that. The other 9,000 of you need you to do it. God, say it again, declaration that we are righteous because through faith Christ's righteousness, that didn't even make sense. Uh, that we are righteous because faith in Christ's righteousness has been, I don't know what that means, but what it means is, is Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us. That's why we're righteous, right? Because it's a declaration. It's not becoming righteous, it is being declared righteous because Christ's righteousness is given to you. That's justification. Don't confuse that with sanctification. Sanctification is the, everybody say this, process whereby we become more Christ-like as God infuses his righteousness into us as we continue to exercise faith in the gospel. He's infusing into us his righteousness and it's a process, right? So you gotta, you gotta get the, the, the distinction here. On one side, we got justification a declaration of our righteousness. It's a, a pronouncement. Sanctification is transformation. It's a process. Justification, you're declared righteous all at once. Sanctification, you become righteous little by little. Here's the thing. A lot of you came back to church and you were looking for this, right? I wanna become more righteous. I gotta get back in church. You gotta start here. Okay, because this right here, this will never lead to this, but this will lead to that. So see, when you come, you don't try to become a better person. The first part of becoming a better person is thanking God that his acceptance of you has nothing to do with you becoming a better person. It had to do with the fact that Jesus was the best person who died for the worst person, you. And when you receive that and you're declared righteous, that process will begin and you'll begin to become more like the God that you love. Then you'll start to understand that that Latin phrase that we've been looking at that Luther used is just, simul justus et peccator, right? By the way, I don't know how to speak Latin, so if you're a Latin teacher, I, I, it probably sounds something like Italian, simul justus et peccatore, okay, peccatore. Simultaneously, just, and righteous, at, even though, while, peccatore, I'm a sinner. And it's not that I become righteous and God declares me righteous, it's that God declares me righteous because of Christ, because I'm in Christ. And having embraced that, man, my heart starts to wanna to become like the God who saved me. And that leads to a whole new kind of righteousness a righteousness that is born from desire, a righteousness where you seek God because you want God, a righteousness where you do righteousness because you love righteousness. It is a righteousness the law could not produce. It is a righteousness the gospel produces and it can only be received as a gift. So here's the question. Have you ever 
started with justification. Have you ever received Christ? Because that's where it begins. Second question I'm gonna ask you is, have you declared that through baptism? Have you joined with Olivia and the other 110 between last week and this week that have already declared faith in Christ through baptism? We wanna give you a chance to do that right here, right now. If you never have, every head bowed, every eye closed, I'm here at the Summit Church. If you've never received Christ, if you've never received Christ, you can do so right here, right now by simply saying, Jesus, I believe you died in my place. I receive your gift. I receive you as my righteousness. I surrender to you as Lord. Say it to him in your own words. I surrender to you as Lord. I receive you as my savior. Talked to a guy just this morning who prayed that with me in the previous service. Said, I finally understand it. You finally understand it, don't you? And you're right now receiving him as savior. Now, if you've never been baptized since becoming a Christian, baptism is the public declaration. It's supposed to happen after you're saved because it's your declaration. That's never happened. I want you to say, God, will you give me the courage to take the first step? Friend, the first step's gotta be yours. Having done this, I'll tell you, it'll feel like every step thereafter is carried along by the Holy Spirit. But that first step's gotta be yours. So you gotta say, God, give me the courage to step out to declare this in baptism. You know, you know that I'm talking to you. You've yet to be baptized and today is your day. It's time to stop making excuses and start obeying. Again, you say, well, I didn't bring the clothes and I don't, we got all that, we really do. We got changes of clothes, we're, we're good. What's gonna happen is right now at every campus, we're gonna have people that are coming and they're gonna fill the aisles or some are gonna stand down front. And in just a minute, when I stand you up, you're gonna step out to the aisle closest to you and somebody will greet you there. And they'll take you to a place where they can answer whatever questions you have and ask you a few questions. And we're gonna start a conversation. And, and if it's time, if you're ready to get baptized, then we're gonna do it today. So I want you right now to say, God, give me the courage, give me the courage to stand and to go when it's time. Father, I pray, I pray in Jesus' name that you would give people the ability to rise above the fear of what people think about them. I know there are some right now that are thinking, but the people beside me are gonna be surprised when I go. And they're thinking, what are people gonna say about me? God, I, I pray that you would give them the ability to, to not let that excuse keep them from a life-defining decision. Give them courage for that first step, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Here's what's gonna happen, okay, in just a minute, I'm gonna stand everybody up at all campuses. In just a minute, we're gonna do that. All right, two things are gonna happen immediately. Everybody in the Summit Church is gonna start clapping, okay? Because that's just like us celebrating what we've seen God do. And if you need to be baptized, immediately as you stand up, don't even hesitate at all, just stand up in one motion, just move out to the aisle that's, that's closest to you where somebody's standing there, okay? And they'll take it from there. That's what you're gonna do. By the way, in case it's not obvious, this is not a great time to go to the bathroom. Uh, you stand up, you get in the aisle, I cannot promise you where that journey is gonna end, okay? <laughs> So you just, not now, just hang on just a minute, okay? But this is your moment. You ready? Uh, we'll do it on three, so there's no question. On three, we'll stand up, and I want you to, to step out, and I want you to obey. Here we go. One, two, three. Let's stand to our feet. Some of us put our hands together. Now let's go. Don't go. Wait. Don't wait a single second. Just come. Just go, and they'll take it from there, okay? Obey. Obey as we worship together.